Would you like predictable monthly income with annual returns up to 15% or more? Norada Capital Management offers you the opportunity to invest in promissory notes with fixed rates of return and monthly direct deposits. We provide investors with an effortless way to diversify beyond other investment options like stocks and bonds and even real estate. Our promissory notes have a high rate of return and are 100% passive. Interest is paid monthly, directly into your account, delivering truly effortless income. Many other passive investments offer rates of return in the 4-6% to range. Our promissory notes have delivered fixed rates of return in the double digits since conception. All notes are in good standing and Norada has a no-default history and reputation. And retirement accounts such as self-directed IRAs and Roth IRAs also qualify for this investment. So if you're looking for an effortless investment with predictable monthly income and double-digit returns, then visit our website at noradacapital.com. Learn more at noradacapital.com today. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, the ancient Greeks immortalized the story of a man who was perpetually distracted we call something that is desirable but just out of reach tantalizing after his name. The story goes that Tantalus was banished to the underworld by his father Zeus as punishment. And there he found himself wading in a pool of water, while above his head dangled a tree ripe with fruit just ready for the picking. Well, the curse seems benign, but when Tantalus tried to pluck the fruit from the tree, the branch moved away from him, always just out of reach. When he bent down to drink the cool water, it receded so that he could really never quench his thirst. Tantalus's punishment was to yearn for things he desired but can never grasp. We are constantly reaching for something, whether it's more money, more experiences, more knowledge, more status, more stuff. And the ancient Greeks thought that this was just part of the curse of being a fallible mortal and used this story to portray the power of our incessant desires. But what would be possible if you followed through on your best intentions? What could you accomplish if you could just stay focused and overcome distractions? If you care about your work, your family, and your physical and mental well-being, you must learn how to become indistractable, as my guest Nir Ayal puts it. And that's what today's episode is all about. So we'll be right back after this quick message and with my new guest, and we will be right back. It's my pleasure to welcome Nir Ayal to the show. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He is the author of two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and his latest book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Now, Indistractable received critical acclaim winning the 2019 Outstanding Works of Literature Award, as well as being named one of the best business and leadership books of the year by Amazon. And in addition to that, it's one of the best personal development books of the year by Audible. So in addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, and that's N-I-R, and far.com. Nier's writing has been featured in Time Magazine, Psychology Today, and the Harvard Business Review. Nier, welcome to the show. Thanks, Marco. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. I first got exposed to you and met you at the Inc. 5000 conference back in September, October, and 
we got talking about your book and I basically loved it so much after listening to your talk, I wanted to get you on the show and you graciously said yes. So uh, I'm glad you're coming on because your message resonates with a lot of people in our audience. So I'm, I'm excited to share it. Before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself so the audience has a better understanding of who you are and where you came from? Sure. So I am what you call a behavioral designer. So I use consumer psychology and behavioral design principles to uh, help companies build habit-forming products. So that was what my first book was about. It was called Hooked. And it came out of a class that I taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, as well as the design school there. And it was all about how can we use the psychology of habit design to help people build healthier, uh, more productive, more connected lives through the products we use. So I've, I've worked with all kinds of companies from the New York Times to fitness apps to education companies, all sorts of products to make those products more habit-forming, to make the kind of products and services that can build healthy habits in people's lives. So that's what my first book was about. After I wrote that book, I also realized that there was a flip side to all this, that sometimes uh, the products and services we use are so well-designed that we want to use them all the time. And the unfortunate byproduct of that is that it can lead to distraction. And I think this is a problem that I'm, I'm guessing every single person listening to the sound of my voice uh, can... Uh, empathize with that, you know, this feeling of constantly feeling distracted, that uh, we have these big, long to-do lists, and somehow we don't do what we say we're going to do day after day. And that was certainly my situation. I would say I was going to spend quality time with my daughter, and yet I'd be on my phone. I would say I was going to work out. I didn't. I would say I was going to work on that big project and somehow find myself doing something else. And so I really wanted to get to the bottom of this question of, why don't we do what we say we're going to do? Why do we get distracted? Because you know, the, the fact of the matter is these days, we all basically know what to do, right? Who doesn't know how to get in shape, okay? Uh, it's kind of common sense. Who doesn't know how to have a better relationship with your family and loved ones? You have to be fully present with them. Who doesn't know how to excel at their job? You got to do the work. You got to make the sales calls. You got to do the stuff that other people aren't willing to do. It's not rocket science. And frankly, if you don't know what to do, Google it. Who doesn't have access to Google? So we know what to do. The question is, why don't we do the things we know we should do? So I argue that the big problem in the 21st century is not the knowledge gap. We have access to the information. The big problem that we face is the action gap. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? And the reason is that we keep getting distracted. And unless we tackle this problem and become indistractable, we are going to have our time, our attention, and our lives be controlled by other people. And so what I want to do is to start this movement of people who say, I am indistractable. This is who I am. I have this skill and this lifestyle to make sure that I do what I say I'm going to do and live the kind of life I want to live. That's a great introduction and a great overview. And the thing I like about your book is you talk about the science and the psychology of it, but it's not just a theoretical book. It's mm. by far a very much tactical book. And there's a lot of takeaways and how-tos, which is practical and I put into use. And so when I was going through the book and your new book, Indistractable, I recognized that you took the time to explain the psychology behind distraction. And you basically broke the book down into four sections. You came up with four key strategies for becoming what you call indistractable. By the way, is that a trademark name? <laughs> well, you, you can't trademark book titles, uh, but I did make up the word. Yeah. So I own the URL and uh, yeah, you can't, can't trademark it, but it is a word I invented. <laughs> I love it. That's a brilliant word. <laughs> Thank you. And the reason, by the way, I, I called it indestructible is because it sounds like indestructible, uh, meaning that it's a superpower. It's what I call the skill of the century. So that's where that came from. I love it. It's great. 
So these four key strategies that you came up with are essentially mastering your internal triggers, hacking back on the external triggers, and then making time for traction, and then preventing distraction with the use of packs, which will be an interesting conversation later on because I feel like I'm just tricking or fooling myself, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So a lot of people today understandably think that distraction has a lot to do with technology and, and, you know, understandably so because the iPhone came out in 2007. Now we have these smartphones everywhere. Virtually everybody has them. But the reality is we get distracted by so many other things and, and for many different reasons. So what is really behind our distractions? Yeah. So one of the first things I was surprised to learn is that distraction is not a new problem. That in fact, 2,500 years before the iPhone, Plato talked about this very same problem. He's talked about how distracted the world was back then, 2,500 years ago. (laughs) He called it akrasia in the Greek, the tendency for us to do things against our better interest. And so clearly, if, you know, Plato was talking about it 2,500 years ago, it can't be something that Facebook and Apple invented. It is nothing new. What is new is that because the access to distraction is easier than ever, because we have these devices in our pockets, that if it is distraction that you are looking for, then I believe it is easier than ever to find, which means it's even more important to be the kind of person who understands how to manage distraction. I really do think that this will be the skill of the century, that what will define the people who succeed and those who fail is the difference between those who allow their time, attention, and their lives to be controlled by somebody else or those who decide for themselves in advance how they want to spend their time and attention. And so the best place to start to understand distraction is to understand what distraction really is. And the best way to do that is to understand what it is not. So if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? They will tell you it's focus, but I don't think that's true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the entomology of both words, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll also notice that both words, traction and distraction, end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. Let me give you a case in point. I used to, before I wrote this book, I used to sit at my desk and, you know, first thing in the morning, I would say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm finally going to do what I said I'm going to do. Here I go. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to work on that thing that I've been procrastinating on. Here I go right after I check email, right? Right after I check this message on my phone, right after I do this one quick thing on my to-do list. And I would get distracted doing something that felt productive, right? Checking your email, doing that thing on your to-do list. Even though I wanted to do something else, I wanted to do that hard task that I've been procrastinating on, I didn't do it because I got distracted by something that felt productive, right? Checking email, doing something worky, that's productive, isn't it? No, it's not. It's pseudo work. Because if you are not doing what you plan to do, that is by definition of a, it is a distraction. And I think it's actually a more pernicious form of distraction because if you sit down at your desk when you're supposed to be working and you start playing Candy Crush or start checking Facebook, that's obviously a distraction, right? You're obviously slacking off. But because it's so obvious, we know how to recognize it. We can see it. But when it's emailing or checking a Slack channel or just returning a text real quick, it fools us. Distraction tricks you into thinking that that task is urgent 
And what we do is we prioritize the urgent at the expense of the important. And that's what gets people on this constant hamster wheel of never finishing the important stuff because they keep doing all the stuff that they think is urgent. And that is cancer for your productivity, well-being, and happiness. So those type of distractions are a real problem. It's the ones that are less obvious. It's not the Facebooks and the, the WhatsApps. That's not as big of a problem as the distractions that we think are work but aren't, are pseudo work. So just as anything can be a distraction, I argue anything can be traction. That as long as you plan to do that activity, as long as that's something that you're doing on your schedule and according to your values, not on the app maker's schedule, but on your schedule, there's nothing wrong with it. So I call BS to this media-fed inferno that we experience these days, calling, you know, technology is melting your brain, it's hijacking your brain, it's addictive. Rubbish. It's not true. Mm. It's all media hype to get you to click more links, right? When the New York Times publishes these stories, they make money the same way Facebook does. They want to waste your time right. and get you scared because they know that's how they're going to make more money showing you ads. If you look at the data, it's not the technology that's doing it to us. And frankly, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I want to go on Facebook for a couple hours. I want to watch a movie on Netflix. I want to you know, see something on YouTube. Nothing wrong with that stuff. As long as you do it on your schedule, not the app makers. So anything can be distraction and anything can be traction as long as it's done with intent. And that's exactly what I show you how to do. So it really comes down to the individual, not what people say is or should or can be distracting. So distraction is whatever you make it as a distraction. Right. It's really about intent. It's about the difference between traction and distraction. It's about right. actions that pull you towards what you really want. And so the secret really here, if there's one mantra in the book, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That really distraction is a problem of impulse control. That if we really want to get to the icky sticky truth, it's not the pings and dings. We love to blame the technology. Every generation has their mind melting technology. You know, they used to say that novels were terrible for you. They were hijacking your brain and comic books and rock and roll music and the television. All these things were supposed to melt our brains. And of course, it never comes to fruition that we are much more powerful than any of these technologies. The real problem is not the technology. The real problem is what's going on inside of us right? The icky sticky truth that people don't want to admit, I certainly didn't, was that the reason we get distracted, it's not just the external triggers. It's not just about the stuff outside of us. It's about what's going on inside of us. That the root cause of distraction is feelings that we want to escape. It's the discomfort of stress, uncertainty, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety. This is why we turn to distractions, whether that distraction is too much TV, too much news, too much Facebook, too much booze, whatever the case might be, it's always about escaping an uncomfortable sensation. And if we don't face that fact and learn tools and techniques to deal with that discomfort, we will always get distracted by something. So that's why step number one is about mastering the internal triggers, having tools in our toolkit so that when we feel that discomfort, we're not constantly reaching for something. We're not reaching for our phone. We're not reaching for Facebook. We're not reaching for that bottle. We're doing something that's healthful and helpful as opposed to hurt. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things you used to do in a day are taking a week. You have too many manual processes. You don't have one source of truth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 
37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all your KPIs, that's your key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash real estate. That's netsuite.com slash real estate to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash real estate. So I know you talk about this in the book. I don't remember how extensively, but it made me think back years and years ago to listening to Tony Robbins that we as people do things more to avoid pain than to actually seek pleasure. And so we're really driven by the fact that we want to avoid pain, not so much that we're seeking that pleasure. Yeah. So Tony Robbins actually does talk about that, but he, I think he's got it a little wrong and it's not his fault. He, he cites Freud. Freud said that uh, he called it the, the pleasure principle, that all human behavior is in pursuit of pleasure right. and the avoidance of pain. But uh, we now know that's not exactly true, that modern neuroscience reveals that it's not about pleasure. That in fact, everything we do, everything you do, you do for one reason only. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. That right. Even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, right? Wanting to feel that pleasure of closing that big deal, asking someone out on that date, whatever it might be, the pleasure that we seek is actually spurred by the discomfort of wanting, craving, lusting, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically that is exactly what is going on in the brain. So what this means, this is very important because if we come to the understanding, and this is what neuroscience supports, that all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, what that means, the big revelation here therefore is that time management is pain management. Right. That if we don't learn techniques to control our discomfort, we will always get distracted by something. So I don't care what guru's techniques you listen to, what life hacks you're using. None of that stuff is going to work if we don't first start with this truism that time management is pain management. We right. have to learn those techniques first. So Nir, if our drive to relieve discomfort is the root cause of all our behavior, essentially, do we need to mm -hmm. understand, I guess I'm assuming we do, but do we need to understand our pain in order to control it or to find better ways to deal with the negative urges that we have? Absolutely. And the first step is acknowledging that feeling bad isn't bad. That the self-help industry today profits from telling people, if you're not happy all the time, <laughs> if you're ever anxious or sad, something's wrong with you. Go get a pill for that, right? Go read this book to get that problem taken care of. It's ridiculous. Nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, there are some people who do suffer from the pathology of depression, anxiety disorder, but the vast majority of people have in their heads that if they feel bad, something must be wrong with them. But think about this from an evolutionary basis. Do you think that if our species was evolved to be happy and content all the time, would that be a good evolutionary trait? Of course not. Evolution designed us to have this adaptation of constantly being pissed off, right. constantly wanting more. Why? Because the tribe of Homo sapiens 
that was never satisfied was the one that kept hunting and inventing and searching. This is called the negativity bias. This is why we always register bad news and fear. That's the kind of stuff that keeps us going because we are designed to never be happy for very long. Happiness is by design a fleeting emotion. We are not designed to be contented. We are designed to always want more. Now, that can get the best of us, right? Many times I, I work with people who have some form of overwork. I wouldn't call it workaholism. That's more of a pathology right? in the addictive form. But we all know that person who is really spending way too much time in the office, and that can have some harmful consequences. It comes at the expense of their personal health, their family relationships, their friends. So that can have some costs as well, and they can't seem to stop. And so that's where it can go overboard. But if we harness that sensation, if we harness that discomfort, that disquietude, it can actually lead us towards traction rather than distraction. And it's really about harnessing it towards doing what we want to do, right? If you crave to make that sale, if you crave to close that deal, there's nothing wrong with that. And being dissatisfied until you reach that goal is the fuel to drive you towards that goal. What's not good, what leads towards distraction is when you let that stress, that anxiety, those sensation lead you to smoke more, to drink more, to check email more, to look for escape in the form of distraction, as opposed to actions that help you move towards traction. Right. So let's take a quick look at one example in each of those four categories. And I've kind of mapped this out for our conversation here today, because you actually have a lot of great content in the book and it's a great read and I highly recommend it. So anybody listening to this, I think this would benefit anybody regardless of what you do. So let's look at internal triggers real quick here. We live in a very safe, healthy society. We live in the safest, healthiest, most well-educated, most democratic time in human history, yet you say that we won't ever be completely happy. Why? Because we are designed for dissatisfaction, that we have <laughs> these confluences of what we call heuristics, these cognitive shortcuts that our brain takes to make sure that we're never satisfied for long. In fact, one of the most powerful is called hedonic adaptation, that we know that even when lottery winners win millions of dollars, they are very happy for a little while, and then they go back down to baseline. The opposite is also true. We know that in studies of people who are paraplegics, right, they're confined to a wheelchair. At first, they're very, very sad, right, very depressed. But then shortly thereafter, they recover and go back to baseline. So our brains are designed to keep us at this base level of mild dissatisfaction all the time. Again, that's an evolutionary benefit. That's what kept our species hunting and striving and inventing and creating. It's what led us to, the, to get to the moon. It's what leads us to create you know, life-changing medicine. That's what helps us progress. But that means that we have to accept that discomfort and learn to utilize it to help us get better as opposed to letting it get the best of us. So between hedonic adaptation, negativity bias, boredom, all of these things lead us towards this dissatisfaction. And what most people do out there when they feel bad is that they turn to something to relieve that discomfort, like babies sucking on a pacifier, right? We look for our, our pacifiers, whether that pacifier is your phone, the television, work, booze, whatever it might be, we constantly reach for those pacifiers to take our mind off of that discomfort. That's the easiest way. That's the path of least resistance to not feel what you don't want to feel. Instead, if we want to be indistractable, we have to ask ourselves, how do we utilize that to lead us towards traction so that it drives us to be better by doing what we really want, as opposed to just helping us escape emotional discomfort? So the bottom line here is dissatisfaction is actually normal, not abnormal. Yep. 
I remember in the book you say that it's, it's actually the dissatisfaction that's responsible for our species' advancements and our own faults, right? That's right. That's right. So we want to harness it. It's, it's, it's like fire, right? A fire can help us cook meat, but it can also burn our house down. So we <laughs> want to make sure that we use it to reach our goals. Okay. So let's look at the external triggers. That was an internal trigger example. Let's look at an external trigger. So it yeah. seems to me that email, I mean, this comes up time and time and time again. It's been the bane of my existence, but email and text messages are the biggest external distractions today for many, many people. And I'm sure probably everybody listening to this, this podcast you know, suffers from this from time to time. Is there a way to hack back our email? I've created my own systems within Gmail through filters and folders yeah. and all that kind of stuff, but it's helped a lot, but I still get inundated. Yeah. So the first step is master the internal triggers. And we just talked about the strategy. We didn't talk about the tactics. Tactics are what you do. Strategy is why you do it. In the book, there's lots and lots of tactics for how to master those internal triggers. And that's the most important step. The second step is about making time for traction. The third step is we'll, we'll get to in a minute per your question is about hacking back the external triggers, the pings, the dings, the things like email that can take us off track. But before we get to step three, let's just take a second to talk about step two, Please. about making time for traction. So after we have the techniques to master the internal triggers, the next step is to make time for traction. What does that mean? This means that if we are going to become indistractable, if we are going to do what we say we're going to do, it is imperative that we decide what we are going to do in advance. Because here's the rule. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I've worked with so many people over the years who tell me how they, you know, they, they can't seem to focus, they have, they, they're not getting enough done. Uh, the world's so distracting these days between what's happening in the news and Twitter and their boss wants this and the kids want that. They just can't seem to do enough. They can't get their personal productivity under control. And I say, wow, that's really unfortunate. Can I see what it was you planned to do today? <laughs> and they say, sure, can I show you my to-do list? I say, no, 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 no. Your to-do list is a list of output. I'm not a fan of to-do lists. To-do lists for most people backfire. Most people do not use to-do lists correctly. In fact, when it comes to to-do lists, here's the thing, I call it the tyranny of the to-do list. What most people do with to-do lists is that they use it as a tool to prove to themselves why they're incompetent. What do I mean by that? When you don't finish the things on your to-do list, you get to the end of another day, and I used to do this day after day after day, half of my to-do list, I wouldn't get done and I would recycle from one day to the next day to the next. When you do that, if you've ever experienced that effect of not finishing everything on your to-do list, what you are doing to yourself subliminally is you are reinforcing that you, yet again, have not done what you said you were going to do. Loser. And that <laughs> negative self-identity is internalized. And then it becomes normal. Well, you know, it's okay. Another day I didn't get done everything I'm going to do. That is toxic. We need to stop that. So instead of keeping to-do lists, which turn out to be not a very effective technique. Instead, what we want to do is to plan the input, not the output. The to-do list is a list of output, but you can't make output without input. What is input? The input is time. So if you have big white space in your day, of course you're distracted. Everything is a distraction because if you don't plan out what you are going to do with your day, everything is a potential distraction. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from, which is where this technique called time boxing comes from. It's been validated in thousands of studies to be one of the most effective things you can possibly do. It's very simply planning out what you are going to do and when you are going to do it. A very critical technique. It will change your home life. 
It will revolutionize your work life. This technique of making a time box calendar, I'll give you a link in the show notes that you can share with the listeners. I built a very simple tool. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's totally free to help you time box your day. And then what I want you to do is to share that time box schedule with the various stakeholders in your life. Sit down with your boss for 15 minutes a week and say, hey, hey boss, here's what I'm gonna do for my week ahead. Here's what I don't have time for. You see this other schedule here? Here's the stuff I couldn't fit into the schedule. Please help me reprioritize. Why is this so important? I am sick and tired of hearing this stupid platitude that every self-help personal productivity guru says that says, if you want more time to focus, tell people no. Come on, give me a break. You're going to look at the person who pays your bills. You're going to look at your boss and say, no, I'm not going to do that, boss. That's ridiculous. You'll get fired. So don't be the one who says no to your boss. Tell your boss, here's what you have time for based on, look at my schedule. I put in everything that needs to get done. Here's the stuff that doesn't fit. You, boss, help me reprioritize. Let them be the one that says no, not you. And that can only be done through time boxing. So that's the critical step number two is making time for the traction in your life. I'm really glad you expanded all that on all that. That is so critically important. And the time boxing thing is phenomenal. I remember I was starting to time box around the time when I first met you. When I, when I heard you talk about it, I thought, yes, this is great. I'm on the right track. I'm doing the right thing. And for people who still are listening to this and don't completely understand it, I guess the best way to think about time boxing is as a framework for how you're going to manage your time. Is that a, a good way to describe it? That's exactly right. It's for many people, you know, they look at my schedule that I propose, you know, I show people my own schedule in the book and they say, oh my gosh, that looks so rigid, right? What, what down to the minute you need to plan every minute of your day, but they don't realize that number one, it's a template. It's a way for you to know for every minute of your day, what is traction, what is distraction, whatever you plan to do is traction. Anything else, even the stuff that tricks you into thinking it's important, right? Like uh, your emails when you really want to be working on that big project, everything else is a distraction. And so that doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means, you know, sometimes I still get distracted. If something unexpected happens, it happens. The point is that now I can do something about it. There's a great quote by Paula Coelho who said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Most people out there have decided to be distracted because they get distracted by the same stuff day after day after day. That has to end. If we want to live with personal integrity, if we want to be honest with ourselves, the only way to do that is to understand what distracted us and now do something about it. Because every distraction only has three potential causes. Either it's an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. And so we can systematically look at what distracted us and make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. I love it. So I really want people to understand this because the takeaway here is that it doesn't matter what you do with your time. It, what's more important is the success of it is measured by what you did with what you planned to do. X, absolutely. Very, very well said. And so if what you want to do is watch that big game, great, do it. And that's one of the best things about being coming indistractable. It's not about being super productive all day long. No. I want you to plan time for play. I want you to plan time to enjoy yourself. And here's the beauty of it. Many people, when they say, you know what, I just want to watch a movie tonight on Netflix, or I just want to watch that big game, in the back of their minds, they still feel guilty, right? They still got that to-do list of stuff that didn't get done. Yeah, that's me. Right, and they can't truly enjoy the big game. They can't get into the movie because they're constantly thinking, oh, I should be doing more, I should be doing more. When you become indistractable, 
it's amazing. You have this weight lifted off your shoulders because you say to yourself, whoa, watching Netflix right now, watching that big game is exactly what I plan to do. Anything else would be a distraction. If you check work email while you're watching the big game, you're distracted because what you wanted to do with your time is to enjoy that game in peace. And that feeling of not having that obligation of always thinking I should be somewhere I'm not is amazing. I want everyone to experience that feeling. So let's just go back one step here and kind of wrap up the thing that I opened up regarding email, you know, and texting yeah. and chat, uh, just to kind of close that loop because we, we jumped ahead to something that probably is one of the most important things I think we could have talked about and given away. And that's the whole thing about time boxing, because that comes down to being effective through what you call traction. Right. But just, I know a lot of people are probably sitting there thinking email, email, email. like, how, right, how right, do you, okay, let's get to that. How do you control or hack back on email and and messaging. I mean, look, if you look at my iPhone right now, I've got six or seven messaging apps from WhatsApp to you name it. And it yeah. just, I have to just ignore it in order to control it. Yeah. So let, let's get to it. So the reason I want to talk about step two is because step two is necessary before we can get to step three. So step three is about hacking back the external triggers. Why do I call it hacking back? To hack means to gain unauthorized access to something. So when you think of a computer hacker, that's what they're doing. They're gaining unauthorized access. Now, we all know that Facebook and Twitter and uh, CNN and the New York Times, they are all hacking your attention, right? They make money when you spend time with those products and services. That's a surprise to no one. But here's the thing. We can hack back. We are much more powerful than these tech companies are. Why? Because we ultimately have the devices in our hands. And there's nothing that these companies can do if we alter the technology to serve us as opposed to the technology serving these tech companies. How do we do that? We ask ourselves a critical question. Is this technology serving me or am I serving it? And so that's where we start. In all these contexts and all these environments where we have these external triggers, whether it's email, your laptop, your cell phone, meetings. Oh my God, how much time do we spend in stupid meetings that don't need to be called? Group chat like Slack, all of these various environments, I go through one by one by one how we can hack back the external triggers in each and every one of these environments to make sure that the distraction, that the, whatever that external trigger is, is serving us as opposed to us serving it. So let's dive deep into this one realm of email because you're right, this, this tends to be one of the most distracting technologies around good old email. So here's what I want you to think about. It's a very simple math problem that when we think about the total time that we spend on email, the total time is a function of the number of messages we receive in a given period of time multiplied by how long it takes us to respond to each message, right? It's a simple math problem. So we can actually break down this math problem and figure out ways to reduce the amount of time we spend on email in any given period of time, say every single day. One of the most effective techniques is to understand where we waste the most time per message. Okay, now there's lots and lots of techniques I described. This is one of the most effective techniques because when we look at time studies, what we find is that where time is wasted on email is not the checking, it's not the replying, it's the rechecking. That's where we waste time. Now, what does that look like? You know what it looks like. You open an email, you check it, you put it away. You open it again, you check it, you put it away. You open it a third time, you open it. You keep doing this, and that is a complete, utter waste of time. That's where we waste the most time on email. So what do we do? A very simple technique that we can use 
is every time we open an email, we have to ask ourselves the most important question from a time management perspective is one question. When does this need a reply? When does this need a reply? Not what's in the email. When does it need a reply? And then what I want you to do is to label that email by one of two categories. If the email needs a reply today, I want you to label it as today. Now, if you don't know how to label emails, just Google it. It'll tell you how to do it in Outlook or Google Mail or, I mean, uh, Gmail or whatever else. It's very easy to do. Label it as either today or if the email is not urgent, if it can wait till sometime this week, label it as this week. If the email doesn't need a reply, then just delete it, right? Or archive it. Now, what do you do with those two categories? Here's what I want you to do. And this is why we had to talk about step two first. For the urgent emails, I want you to put time in your calendar to reply to just the urgent messages, okay? Whether it's an hour a day, half an hour, two hours, however much time you need in your day, time box that time to reply only to the urgent messages. Now, this will be about 20% on average of your emails. Okay, now what about the other 80%? What do you do about all those? Now, here's where the magic happens. Once a week for those non-urgent emails, I want you to time box a big chunk of time. For me, it's three and a half hours every Monday. I call it Message Mondays. That time is held in my calendar. And on Message Monday, my priority is to flush through all those emails that didn't need an urgent response. Now, you say, well, well, you're not saving any time. You just deferred it to later on, didn't you? No. Here's the beauty of it. Remember that the way we reduce the time spent on email is reducing the number of how much time we spend on each message in a given period of time. So when we delay that time, here's what happens. We stop this stupid ping pong game that a lot of people play by responding to every email as it gets in. Instead, by categorizing them by when they actually need a reply, either today or this week, we cut down on the ping pong game that creates way more emails than are necessary. Here's the other bit of magic that happens. When you delay how often you reply to an email based on how much of a priority it is, there's this unbelievable thing that happens. Emails, the importance of these emails decays. Here's how it works. You realize that when you give these messages a little time to breathe, the thing that somebody thought was so important is not so important anymore. Somebody answered their own stupid question. The thing that was important back then is now crushed under the weight of some other priority. And all that time you would have wasted on that email didn't need to be wasted. So those emails that can wait sometime this week, you'll find that about half of them don't even need a reply anymore. And you've saved yourself tons and tons of time. So that technique of labeling each message by when it needs a reply, and then using this time box technique to only reply to emails during those times when you've, you've apportioned that time in your day is very, very effective. This will reduce the time you spend on email by up to 90%. Because wow. what you don't want to do, what most people do is they check email when they feel stressed, right? I'm not really sure what to work on right now. So let me just check email because I'm, uh, I'm, I need to be responsive all the time. My clients demand it. That's BS right? That of course your clients do demand you respond, but you can put that time throughout your day so that it's on your schedule, right? Even if it's, I need to check email four times a day, fine. 30 minutes, four times a day, I'm going to make sure there's nothing urgent. What you don't want to do is to reply to the non-urgent emails as if they're all urgent because they're not all urgent, right? Some are urgent, right? About 20%, but 80% on average can wait till sometime this week. And so that's what we want to do. So that's actually the one question I have that I'm not completely clear on. And I don't think this is a stupid question, but I'm sure there's people who are asking the same question. How do you determine what 
emails are, let's say, urgent and need to be replied to today versus this week? Do you judge that based on who it's coming from and the subject line? Because if you don't, if you can't tell from those two pieces of information, then you actually have to open it. And now you're going into that. Oh, you definitely need to open it. You you open each email, but you're only opening each email two times. You're opening it once to determine, you're reading the email, you're open the email, you read the email, and you're determining whether to answer today or this week. And before you close it, you're labeling it as today or this week. For the first time, you're just labeling it. You're not replying. The second time you open it, you're only opening it during your time box schedule based on how urgent it is. So you definitely still have to read it. What most people do is they touch each email five, six times because they forgot what was in it and don't know how urgent it is because they forgot. Now you know how urgent it is and you're only replying to those emails you've labeled accordingly. Got it. Okay, so let's start landing the plane here with this last and fourth section about what I call fooling yourself, but you call it pacts. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So focus, it not only requires keeping distraction out, but it it really necessitates keeping ourselves in. And so you talk about three different pacts, three different ways to essentially hack this or you help hack yourself. And the first is your effort pack. So you have effort pack, a price pact, and an identity pact. Just give us kind of the quick and skinny on these three. Yeah. So the idea here behind a a pre-commitment or a pact is to make some kind of promise with yourself. And it's an incredibly effective technique. I will say you have to do it last. Okay. You have to do it after the other three. Some people jump into one of these techniques where they use a pact, but they haven't properly prepared the soil. And so they get some bad results. You have to first start by mastering the internal triggers. You have to have a a plan in place in terms of making time for traction. You have to hack back those external triggers. The last step, the fail-safe, is to make one of these pacts. And when you make one of these pacts, basically what you're doing is you're making a pre-commitment in advance so that you won't go off track. So there are three types of pacts. You have what's called an effort pact, where there's some kind of friction to do something you don't want to do, right? So some kind of effort that makes it difficult to get distracted. Another type of pact is called a price pact, where there's some kind of cost, some kind of payment that needs to be paid if you get distracted, if you don't do what you say you're going to do. And this comes from a study around smoking cessation. The most effective smoking cessation study in history found that all it took was a $150 bet that uh, (laughs) you would get back $150 if you did not smoke. It's most effective smoking cessation study in history, more effective than nicotine patches and gums and all that stuff, just making a bet. (laughs) Uh, So that's one type of, of pact. Then the third type of pact is called an identity pact. An identity pact comes from the psychology of religion, that we know that when someone has a moniker, an identity that they call themselves, they become much more likely to do what they say they're going to do. So when when someone calls themselves a devout Muslim or an observant Christian, or even for that matter, a vegetarian, it makes doing what they say they're going to do much more likely. So a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have some bacon for breakfast. No, they don't eat meat. That's just who they are. Right. And so that's why the book is titled Indistractable. This is the new moniker. You know, even if you don't read the book, you now having listened to this podcast episode, you can call yourself indistractable. You are the kind of person who strives to do what they say they're going to do. And having that identity, having that moniker reinforces your identity and makes you more likely to stay on track. So we can wrap this up with a great takeaway. And it's something you call the 10-minute rule. How does that work? So the 10-minute rule helps us go full circle here. The 10-minute rule is is a technique that we use in that first strategy around mastering the internal triggers. 
And it's one technique of many that I describe. It comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And the idea behind the 10-minute rule is to tell ourselves we can give in to any temptation, whether it's eating that piece of chocolate cake we know we shouldn't have or checking email when we know we should be working on a big project instead of, or making those sales calls. The 10-minute rule says we can give in to that temptation in just 10 minutes, right? And this has actually been shown to be much more effective than strict abstinence, that when we have a technique in place to say, oh, when I feel that internal trigger, when I feel stressed, anxiety, uncertainty, if a task is just not fun to do, it's okay, it's totally normal, but I can give in to that temptation in just 10 minutes. And that technique has been shown to be very, very effective. Of course, there's some particulars you have to understand to do it correctly, but that technique is very, very effective. In other words, you're basically saying to yourself, I'm going to avoid that temptation for 10 minutes before I even actually take action on it. And odds are you're going to be doing something else that's probably more important within that 10 minutes and you won't end up going and pursuing that distraction in the first place. Right. Because these internal triggers, these uncomfortable emotions, they crest and then they subside. In the moment, they feel like they're going, oh, I want it so bad. But if you can learn to do what psychologists call surf the urge, if you can just ride out that sensation like a surfer riding a wave, this is how we can learn to master these internal triggers. Yeah, I feel that way with chocolate. So maybe I'll have to wait yeah. 10 minutes. <laughs> give it a shot. You'll find nine times out of 10 if you say, yeah, sure, I can give into that temptation. No problem. I can have that piece of chocolate. I'm just going to wait 10 minutes. What you'll find is that in that 10 minutes, especially if you learn some of these techniques that I talk about in the book around addressing these urges with curiosity rather than contempt. You know, a lot of people beat themselves up. They think, oh, I'm lazy. I have a short attention span. There's something wrong with me. That's not the way to properly respond to that right. stuff. That can actually make it worse. Also, that you know, it makes it worse when you say strict absence. No, definitely don't eat that. That actually can make it worse as well. That tends to make you ruminate on what you want and doesn't actually relieve the tension. It makes the tension worse. So these techniques that I describe in the book where you can surf the urge through curiosity around the sensation is a much healthier approach and much more effective. Right. Nir, this has been incredible. The information is so practical and useful. The book is outstanding. I'm going to go back and go through it one more time. There's just that much information in the book. So with that, please tell our listeners how they can find you and get more information about you and your books and products. Absolutely. So if you go to Nir and Far, Nir is spelled like my first name. That's N-I-R and Far. So uh, that's uh, nearandfar.com. That's my personal blog. And if you go to nearandfar.com, there's an 80-page workbook that's completely complimentary that will help you on your journey to becoming indistractable. If you do end up getting the book, make sure you go to indistractable.com after you buy the book. Keep the order number, whether you buy it from Amazon or your local bookseller, make sure you keep the order number. If you enter in the order number at indistractable.com, you can get access to a free video course that's part of this bonus package. There's all kinds of information that's, that goes along with the book. So that's all available at indistractable.com. It's I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. That's awesome. I didn't even know about that. I'll uh, make sure I put that in the show notes and in the podcast episode notes as well. So that way people can click on it right from there. So Nir, thank you so much for taking the time today. And uh, we're going to get this out within a week or two. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Nir. If you enjoyed this episode and haven't already, please remember to subscribe. Just click the little button on your player wherever you may listen to this podcast and this episode. For more information on real estate investing, download our free report, The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing, available on both of our websites at PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com as well as NoradaRealEstate.com. 
And if you're ready to take the next step, whatever the next step might be for you, get your free strategy session with one of our investment counselors. Just complete the contact form on our website and we will assign an investment counselor to you. And you usually hear back within 24 hours, if not the same day. Help us spread the word. Visit us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. I read those all. I greatly appreciate it. So thank you in advance for that. And thanks for listening. I will see you on the next episode. Are you looking for a roadmap to financial freedom? If so, we have a solution for you. Narada Real Estate is offering a limited number of free strategy sessions to help you get out of the rat race. Learn how you can create wealth and build monthly passive income. To set up a time with one of our knowledgeable investment counselors, simply go to naradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights in media interviews, please contact the host.